0: If you guys want to follow along with me, please turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 4, 7. I'll read that all at once here in just a minute. Before we jump in, let me give you a little bit of context since we are just jumping right into the middle of the book of Galatians. Uh, Galatians was written by Paul to a church that he helped start. and It was a church that started really well. At the beginning, they were... Believing the gospel, they were trusting in Jesus. Um, then something happened. Some, some guys called Judaizers came in and just disrupted this church in a very severe way. And essentially what happened was these Judaizers came in and they saw all these Gentiles, these non-Jews who were worshiping, who were trusting in Jesus, worshiping um, their God, and they said, look, it's great that you guys believe in Jesus, okay, that's that's wonderful, but if you truly want to be in right standing with God, if you truly want to be holy and acceptable and pleasing to the Lord, it's not enough just to believe in Jesus. That There's this whole other side of this thing that you guys are missing called the Old Covenant, the law. Um, these things that you need to do in order to really be pure and holy and righteous before God, there's certain dietary restrictions you have to follow, There's certain washings you have to do. There's things you can and can't do, things you can and can't eat. And if you'll do all these things, if you'll check all these boxes, then that's what's really going to make you holy and acceptable to the Lord. Trusting in Jesus is great, don't get me wrong. But if you really want to be holy, there's this other list of things you need to do to make yourself acceptable and presentable before the Lord. And then Paul's letter to the Galatians is essentially one long rebuke. Of that teaching. Um, and so what he does is he gives three or four illustrations. He say, let me say it like this. He gives an illustration of, of why we're justified by faith alone and what role the law plays in that. Then we'll give another illustration and then another one. And that's essentially that the meat of the book is just these series of illustrations. One of those is that of a guardian. Um, so let's read that, the, the text itself, and then we'll walk through it and see what Paul's saying here. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father." In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth His Spirit of the Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So, as we jump into this, let me explain what Paul means in verse 23. Take a look at that for me real quick. He says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Before faith came. When I first studied this, I thought that was kind of a, a confusing phrase. What did he mean by before faith came? And what he's essentially talking about is before Jesus in the gospel. Before this, this new covenant God has with us in which it's based upon our faith in Jesus. So he says, before that, faith in Jesus came. Before that, so he's referring to the old covenant. Um, and so let me just explain a little bit about these two covenants, because everything in this text, Paul's, Paul's kind of contrasting. There was the old covenant, right? The old way of doing things. The old way that we related to God. And now, we're under, now that faith has come, now that Jesus has come, now we're under a new covenant. Um, so let me just explain what that word means, with kind of three points. First, is a covenant is a solemn agreement. Um, it's an agreement between two parties, and and really in the in, in the scriptures that that would be a standard covenant. But in the scriptures, it's really it's not an agreement in the sense that like we like God pulled up a chair and said, okay, here's what I'm thinking. If I'll do this and you do this, and then we pulled up a chair and said, yeah, I like a lot of those things, but let's add this. Not right. It wasn't like that. It was essentially God saying, "I'm going to make a covenant with you, and here it is, right?" And that was it. There was no bargaining. There was no um, moving around. No, no sliding of things back and forth on our side. Um, but it is, in a sense, an agreement where it's here's what's expected of me, here's what's expected of you, and we're both agreeing to operate under those terms. Um, A covenant was not just an agreement, it would be ceremoniously ratified. And here's what it would look like um, in Abraham's day, back in the Old Testament days, is that they had a phrase called cutting a covenant. Um, And what that meant was this, is that in order to really ratify this and make it somber and make it meaningful and make it a big deal, is that they they would make a sacrifice to kind of institute this covenant. And so what that would look like is they would take three or four animals, maybe like a lamb, a goat, a cow, maybe some birds, and they would literally like cut them in half. And then they would make like a path in between them. So you figure like the heads over here, right? The heads and the forelegs, and then the backsides over here, is that they they would lay out these, these animals that were cut in half, and then both people would walk through that path, right, with the blood on their feet in between, saying like, this is what should happen to me If I break this covenant, if I don't hold up my end, what happened to these animals is what should happen to me. And just added a seriousness to it, right? Added like a gravity to it where this this wasn't just an agreement. This was a big deal. This was binding. This is something we're expected to hold each other to. So it was a solemn agreement, ceremoniously ratified. And there would usually be a witness. And when we think of a witness, we think of like someone else who saw it, right? Who can vouch for it. They didn't think of a witness that way. To them, the witness was anything that they would see that would remind them of that covenant. So there may be they may have cut that covenant by like a big boulder. And they would have said, that boulder's the witness. Now, they're not going to go up to the boulder and ask him what happened, right? Or her, depending on, I don't know how that works. But they're not going to go up to the boulder and ask what happened. But the, it's that when I see that boulder, it's going to cue and I'm going to remember what happened here. We're going to, you and I can both look at that boulder and say, remember, remember by that boulder when this happened? So that was, the, that was the idea of a witness. You see the same thing with Noah, right? When God makes a covenant with Noah to, ne- to, with Noah, to never flood the earth again, he gives him the witness of what? You guys with me? Of what? Rainbow. A rainbow. That, the rainbow. I'm going to put my bow in the sky so that every time you see that, that will be the witness. That will be the reminder to you and I of the covenant that I made with you. So those were the three elements of a covenant. Now, under, under the old covenant, here's what I mean by that. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? It's not that God changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament, but how he relates to us did change pretty drastically, actually. And so how God related to his people in the old covenant um, was very different. You think about how we th- how we think of God, right? Most of us, when we view God, if someone were to ask you, who, "Who is God to you?" Right, we would say He's our He's our friend, right? That He's near to us; we're intimate with Him. We would say He's maybe He's our Father. We would use family terms. Someone living in the old covenant would never dream of describing God as their friend or as their Father. Right? Like where the new covenant is marked with nearness and oneness and closeness, and God being very approachable. The Old Covenant was marked with with fear, right? Where God was holy, he was other, he was separate. You dare not lift your eyes to him without doing the proper steps first and making the proper sacrifices. Holiness was the key attribute, right? Not love, but holiness, otherness, separate, different. And so the way people related to God under the Old Covenant was very, very, very different. And we found that it was lacking, that there was some consistency. and right, Just like in the New Covenant, our, the idea is that we're able to come to God because of the atoning blood of Jesus. They had the same idea in the Old Covenant. There was, there was an atonement that needed to happen for our sin in order for us to approach God. But that atonement was lacking. I understand you guys have spent a few weeks in Hebrews not too long ago. You may have, you may have done this... Um, done this idea hit this idea before but Hebrews 10:11 says this way every priest stands daily at his service offering the same sacrifices which can never take away sins so the tone was different the, 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 and, the and the covenant was lacking that that God had shown his people who he was got to reveal himself he had begun to relate to this people Israel but there was stuff missing there it wasn't complete And it was found lacking even by the prophets. Jeremiah recorded it this way. says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the old covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was their husband. So there's this idea under the old covenant that God's people broke it and that because of our sinfulness, because of our inability to hold it up, something needed to change, right? That, that that system of how we would operate before God was lacking, it was deficient, it was missing. Like there needed to be change, there needed to be something else. And essentially what Paul is doing in, in the book of Galatians, but in this text specifically, is explaining how that has changed now that Christ has come. And he does it with this illustration of a guardian. Look in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And so the idea here behind a guardian is this is that back in that day that If your father, let's say your father had an estate in a business that he ran, right, on his estate. He had workers, he had employees, he probably had slaves. That Your father was doing really well, right? He had a, a large operation under his control. Is that if you were his son, let's say you were six or seven years old, that... You, even though you were the heir to that operation, to that business, to that estate, it was, it was yours, it was eventually going to be yours, and you were a son, but at the age of six or seven, you would, be no treat, you would be treated no differently than one of the slaves, right? As a six or seven-year-old, you couldn't walk out to the estate and start giving orders about who should go where and what should be done, right? Because you haven't come of age yet. And so your upbringing would be no different than that of a slave, that you would have guardians set over you. And the purpose of those guardians, think of them like a nanny, right? The guardian, the purpose was to prepare you for the inheritance that you would receive. Their, Their whole purpose, their job, would be to get you ready for the time when you come of age, the time that your father said, so that you are prepared to take over, to come into a new type of role for yourself that was the idea of a guardian and Paul is making this illustration that that's what the law was that the law was our guardian preparing us for the coming of Christ right that the law the old old covenant was never meant to be a permanent solution right it wasn't as though god put that in place and one day realized man this isn't working i got to come up with something else right no it was god's plan all along to introduce a new covenant that the old covenant was there to prepare us For the coming of Jesus in the new age, in the new covenant. So how does the law prepare us as heirs? How does it prepare us for us coming into our full inheritance as sons and daughters of God? Three things. One, it shows us our need of forgiveness. Right? Paul said it like this, that had it not been for the law, I would have never known it was wrong to covet. But because of the law, I know was aware of that sin that I was coveting, I was sinning and didn't even know it. That the, the law, all the things laid out in the Old Testament, all the do's and don'ts, what they do is they kind of act as a mirror that we compare ourselves to those rules and see, man, we have failed, right? We need forgiveness, that we're not good enough to do this on our own. And so in that sense, the law does prepare us for the coming of Jesus because it's showing us all along that we can't do this. We need something else. Something needs to change. And guys, that's true in a broad macro sense, right? That when that you think about these two ages that all along in the old covenant, all those rules, all, all the things God's people couldn't follow, they were preparing humanity in the world for the coming of Jesus to show the world and show us as God's people our need for something greater. But here's the thing, like we didn't experience that, right? I mean. I see some folks who have gray hair in here, but none of us lived before Jesus, right? I mean, none of, us, none of us were part of that transition, right, from Old to New Covenant. But this also plays out in a very micro level in our own hearts, right? I mean, think about it like your faith journey, you're coming to believe and trust in Jesus. Part of that was one day you realizing, here's the law and I can't keep it, Right? I can't do this, I can't follow all these things perfectly, showing you that you need something else, someone else to intervene on your behalf if you're going to be in right standing with God. So this Old Covenant, New Covenant exists on a macro level, but it exists on a micro level for all of us on our own journey to faith. I love the way John Stott said it, he said it like this, We must never bypass the law and come straight to the gospel. To do so is to contradict the plan of God in biblical history. No man has ever appreciated the gospel unless the law has first revealed him to himself. It is only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear. And it is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. So we might say that the gravity of the law and our inability to keep it is not just helpful but essential for us to understand the gospel. So the law prepares us as heirs by showing us our need of forgiveness. It also foreshadows the need of atonement and witness. Now we're going to spend a lot of time here because we've already talked about it, but it's this idea that within the law, within the old covenant, there was atonement, right? There were things that were killed, blood was shed to to cover our sins, right? And... There was witness. There were signs to mark us as God's people, right? Again, you have, um, you have the rainbow. Think about circumcision. Circumcision was the sign of God's covenant. So you had these these, these these atonement elements, and then you had these witness elements, which was all preparing us, painting a picture of what Jesus would do. And then number three, in other ways, another one of the ways the law prepares us for the coming of age, prepares us for the gospel, is it shows us how to please our Father. Think of it this way. Everything a guardian would teach a son before he came of age, before he came into his inheritance, everything that guardian would teach him, when that son reached the coming of age, he would not go, well, I can forget all that now, finally, right? I mean, He wouldn't say, well, now that my guardian's not here, I can take everything that dude told me and just toss it away, right? Because I'm the boss now. No, the hope would be that what he learned while he was under a guardian would be principles which he would learn to love, right? And the same is true of the law that, on the one hand, the law is like a mirror that shows us we can't please God on our own, but on the other hand, it's also instruction that shows us what it looks like to live a life that honors and pleases our Heavenly Father. So it's both. It shows us where we can't succeed, and then it shows us how to walk in a way that pleases our Heavenly Father. So while the guardian himself may kind of fade into the background, right? in some sense the lessons from that guardian are still there and are helpful even after the coming of age. So what caused this transition? Like where in this illustration do we go from being under the old covenant to the new? Where do we go from being an heir who's under a guardian to this idea that we have now come of age and have come into our Inheritance. Look in chapter four, verse four and five. It says this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So it's this idea that with the coming of Jesus and with our redemption, we go from being heirs who are treated like slaves, to being sons and daughters. Of God. And the word there that when the fullness of time came, it's, it's the word for satiation. If you think about it this way, think about if you're pouring um you're pouring something into a glass, right? My kids are great at this, um, especially when the milk carton is full, you know, they, they do a wonderful job of this. But you picture you're pouring you're pouring a glass of say milk or whatever, it reaches that point where like one more drop and the thing's gonna overflow, right? That that's the word here, that when the fullness of time have come, and we, we don't know what that means in, in our limited minds, but as history was playing out, God saw that it was just the right time, right? Where if we wait any longer, it's going to be too long. At that time, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, to give us our inheritance. Just like a father would, right? There wouldn't be any necessarily clear rhyme or reason for when a father would say his son is ready to come into his inheritance to take over the estate. There's not like this checkbox of things, but the father just knew now is the time. Now is the time for him to step into this, that God was looking down and said, now is the time for the transition when he sent Jesus. So what changed with that? We're going to look at five things that have changed that we see in this text. One is that there's a better atonement. Remember that bloodshed was a big part of a covenant. That The idea was this, that in the, the old covenant, when God cut the first covenant with his people, what happened was this, that if you look in Genesis 15, God put Abraham into a deep sleep. And then Abraham saw that these, these, these animals were there. He cut them, he laid, he laid it open for the covenant, right? And then and then what normally would happen was one party would walk through, then the other party would walk through. But here's what Abraham saw, right? Is that he saw, figuratively, he saw God walk between those animals. And he himself never walked through. Which is significant because it's God essentially saying like, look, if, if one of us breaks this covenant, there's, there, they should die for it. But you're not going to have to walk through it, only I'm going to. It's a foreshadow of what would happen, that even though we were the ones, Abraham, Israel, us, we were the ones that broke the covenant, that broke the old covenant, that God would assume the consequences upon himself for us breaking the covenant. So there's kind of this foreshadow in the old covenant, and that's why they kept having to make sacrifices because it wasn't getting it done. And finally, under the new covenant that was all taken care of, Hebrews 10 says it like this, Every priest stands at his daily service offering the same sacrifices which can never take away sin, but Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God because it was done. So this idea of now that faith has come in Galatians means that a faith that we truly understand because of Christ, that under the old covenant, there was still faith, right? Like when they there was faith in God's system, God's provision. That the idea was God provided those animals that could be sacrificed to provide atonement. There was still faith placed in those things. But but they also saw that it was insufficient. So there was kind of this tension of like, man, we trust that God is said to do this and we'd be forgiven, but we we can't get enough goats in here, right? Like we can't kill enough animals to cover our sins. So there was just this. And hopefully, in the midst of this, God is gracious and he's merciful, and somehow, even though we can't kill enough animals, somehow this will work out. Now that faith has come, is really now that faith is completed. Like, now we see what that was all about. That it was all priming us to understand the sacrifice of Jesus that would be sufficient to cover all our sins. I think that's why Peter says these are things into which angels long to look. That when we've seen Christ crucified as the full, final atonement, the promise finally fulfilled, made thousands of years earlier, what we're seeing is something angels wish they could see, but they can't get it from their perspective because they haven't walked through it like we have. Number two is there's a better witness. 3:27 says this, Starting 26: "For in Christ Jesus you were all sons of God through faith, For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ." So there's this idea that under this new covenant, we have put on Christ through baptism, through the, the picture that baptism. And the idea of putting something on is is something that was, again, present all throughout the Old Covenant. Think about when Adam sinned, right? He and Eve were kicked out of the garden. What what was the first thing God did? He killed an animal and he covered them. He put a covering on them. He covered their nakedness and their shame. Think about the priest, right? God gave them very clear instructions for what to wear to cover them, to cover their sinfulness. And he's saying, guys, baptism is like this new Witness, this new better witness that when you look at baptism, when you remember your baptism, you remember that's the time where you didn't, you no longer need to put on robes or animal skins. You have put on, been draped in the righteousness of Christ. It's a better covering than anything that existed under the old covenant. You have put on Christ, been wrapped in his righteousness. So there's a better atonement a better witness, and there's a better unity. Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, male nor female. The idea here is that the church ought to bring folks together who would otherwise want little or nothing to do with each other. I think that's that's a challenging question for us. Like, as you look around the room, and maybe all these people are in the other service, right? As you look around the room... You see anyone that you would normally have nothing in common with and probably want nothing to do with. But has Christ brought you together in the midst of that? About different personalities, different interests, different cultures, different backgrounds. It's the beauty of the church, right, is that Christ has broken down the walls and under this new covenant we're all one. Jew and Greek, male and female, slave and free, all of us are on equal footing at the foot of the cross. Fourthly, there's a better liberty from the law. And guys, this is, this is the meat of what Paul's trying to say with this illustration. Look at 6 and 7. It says this, 4, 6, and 7. Because you are sons, God has sent his spirit into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Again, the idea of liberty from the law is not that we cast aside the law, right? It's that we're no longer under its thumb. Does that make sense? Think about the different relationship that son would have with that guardian. If that guardian, man, that guardian is probably like the dude that spanks him when he misbehaves, tells him where he can and can't go, what he can and can't do. The guardian for that son is the one who rules over him for his good, right? but he has to answer to him. He's under that dude's thumb. When he comes of age, that relationship changes, right? And that's our relationship with the law, that we have liberty from the law. We're not under the thumb of the law. We're not watching our step, afraid to look at God, right? Distance from him, scared, not wanting to make any mistakes. That's not how we as Christians operate in the law anymore. That's what Paul says. says. We're not under the law. It's not oppressing us. It's not ruling and dominating us. It's not what defines us like it was in the Old Covenant. But rather the law is something now that we see as a good thing, that we're not bound to it, we're not controlled by it, we're not not beaten down and, and guilted by it. We're set free from it, but it's still a good thing. And I wonder if we act like that, though. Is what Paul's essentially telling the Galatians is, hey, don't go back to that. Don't revert back to where you feel like the law is over you, right? Don't revert back to where you feel like the law is the ultimate authority in your life. God is. You've, you've grown out of that. You've grown into a new face. Don't go back to that. Don't go back to walking in uncertainty and fear and distance. Instead, realize that God has made you his sons, your relationship with God is no longer defined as master to slave, but father to son. That there's a closeness, there's an intimacy, there's a trust that didn't exist before. But sometimes I feel like we do, we do. We, we revert back to that. Two times, two times in our lives I think we do this. One is after we've just sinned and we've completely blown it. Whatever that is. Whatever your thing is that you struggle with, man, you step into that and you you begin to trust that instead of Jesus, thinking that's going to solve your problems, that's going to make you feel better, and you just know you have blown it, right? Now, there there ought to be a guilt with that, right? Just like if my son knows he's done something wrong, there's a little bit of trepidation and guilt when he comes to me in a shame. That's okay. But I don't think my son has ever wondered, like, I wonder if Dad's still going to love me. I wonder if dad's still going to let me live here. Because he knows I'm his father. There, there, there may be some guilt and some shame, but man, there is no, there's no fear that I'm going to be done with him and dismiss him altogether, right? But sometimes we treat God that way like, man, I don't know if he can let this one go. It's the third time this week. Man, I'm kind of afraid to go before him. You're going back. As if the law is what rules over you, and it's not. You're a son or daughter of your heavenly father. We do it when we sin. I think sometimes we do it just when we struggle. I went through a hard time with my family about three years ago that was just like, you ever had those seasons where it just felt like Job? It's like right when things feel like they can't get any worse, here comes another messenger and it just got worse, you know? Went through a season like that and. Up until that point in my life, like when I'd heard people talk about being angry at God, that that just baffled me. Like, I, not in a judgmental way, but I just didn't understand. Like, how could you feel angry at the Lord? I mean, He created for you and died for you. And then, during that time in my life, man, I, I felt that. I felt those emotions of like wanting to wanting to look at God and just go, "What the heck?" Which just added to it, right? Because now I'm like, not only is like God giving me all these trials, now he's probably even more frustrated at me because I'm angry at him and I'm not handling it the way a Christian should handle it. I came across this verse. I'm thankful for mentors in my life who've taught me that don't just read the Bible when you feel like it. Like, read the Bible especially when you don't feel like it as a discipline. I was doing that. I did not want to read the Bible. Did not want to hear from the Lord. Did not want to draw near to the Lord, but did it anyways came across this verse, Psalm 103. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those of us who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Listen to this. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. Some say he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. I can't tell you how encouraging that was to me at that point in my time. This idea that God doesn't have unrealistic expectations of you. Like, just like I'm not expecting my eight-month-old Anna Jane to like be able to make her breakfast, right? Like, that would be an unrealistic expectation. Why? Because I know she's a baby, (laughs) and babies don't do that, right? And that's what the scripture is saying, that God knows your dust. He knows it's hard sometimes, right? He knows you struggle. He knows there's weakness. He knows there's frailty. He knows your dust. And just like a good father has compassion on his children, God has compassion and empathy on us in the midst of our weaknesses and our struggles, so we can draw near to him as we struggle, as it's hard. Lastly, there's a better love for the law. Jeremiah 31, 33 says it like this. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. Remember earlier it talked about a need for a new covenant. It says this, I will put my law on their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. The idea behind the law now is that we don't seek to appease God's wrath as our judge, but we do seek to please him as our father. John Owen said it this way, that slaves take liberty from duty. Children take liberty in duty, right? If you're a slave and you don't ask you to do something, you, you look forward to the time where you don't have to do that anymore. But if you're, if you're a child, you take liberty and joy in that duty. You love doing the things your father has said for you to do. That as Christians, we ought to have a deeper love for the law, that what used to be rules we had to follow should now be principles that we value. Should, what used to be rules that we had to follow because we were under it now are principles that we value because we see that they're good and that they please our Father. So under this new covenant, not, it's not that the law is dim- diminished, it's that we ought to have a better love for it. I'll close with this quote by Tim Keller. He said it this way, We no longer view it as a system of salvation. And once we come to the law motivated by gratitude, we are better in our obedience of the law than we ever were when we thought that our obedience might save us. Let's pray. God, thank you for this text this morning. Um, And God, thank you for uh, just this illustration that just like... (laughs) kind of thankful for the Galatians who were dense and needed multiple illustrations because of how it now helps us today um, to see the role that the law has in leading us to you and how even now the law shows us what it looks like to please and honor you and walk in your ways as our Heavenly Father. And God, I just pray for us today that we would, our perspective would be shaped by that. God, that we would not cower before you like reverting back when we've sinned and when we've struggled um, and God at the same time that we would take what the law has taught us and learn to love it because we want to be near you and we want to please you and we want to walk with you In Christ's name, Amen